This podcast episode is brought to you by the Outcomes Rocket Network, where you get your healthcare insights from the most inspiring healthcare podcasters. Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Provider Solutions and Development. With a projected shortage of 124,000 physicians by 2034, you need an excellent recruitment partner. Provider Solutions and Development is a leader in physician and APC recruitment because they do recruitment differently with no commissions or quotas. With their nationwide provider network, PS&D, will work one-on-one with you to create a highly customized recruitment plan designed to find the right candidates for the job. Visit info.psdconnect.org forward slash outcomes rocket. That's info.psdconnect.org forward slash outcomes rocket to start the conversation today. Hey, everybody, Saul Marquez here with the Outcomes Rocket, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am thoroughly privileged to be with an outstanding nurse leader. I am with the outstanding Louis Stout. He was formerly the chief nursing officer and deputy commander for health readiness at the Madigan Army Medical Center and a longstanding career in the military as a nurse a nurse leader. That's 30 plus years having served. So first of all, just a huge thank you, Lou, for for the work that you've done, not only for our country, but for the health of those serving this country. Can't tell you how grateful I am and, and how grateful the listeners are to have you here on our podcast. You've done so much in your career. So I'm excited about diving into some of those things today. And also on some of your thoughts on the role of nursing within healthcare and maybe even the role of the army and what we could do to, to make healthcare better. So Lou, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and fill in any of the details of the bio that maybe you feel are most important, and then we'll get going. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Spend a little bit of time with you and and your listeners. Nursing as a career you know, wasn't really sure where I would end up. You know, many years ago, I was interested in you know, some aspect of service, you know, in healthcare definitely drew my attention and wasn't really sure where I would end up. And the military came along while I was in college and, um, you know, they offered me a a scholarship at the time. And I thought, well, I'd give this a try for a couple of years and uh, maybe then go get a real job. And, you know, I signed up for four years and next thing I knew, four years came and went and then it was 10 years. And I thought, well, I can, uh, you know, military retirements at 20 and at 20, I was still absolutely enjoying it, traveling the world and meeting people from everywhere, from all over our country and other countries as well and healthcare providers. And next thing I knew I was at 30 years and for the military, that's a mandatory retirement. So yeah, they, they said it's time to retire. And now I'm, you know, looking for that, that next step in my healthcare journey as uh, as a healthcare executive so that I can continue to serve and 
continue to lead and, and learn from others. It's so amazing. I mean, you, your career is so, so cool. I mean, you've done so many great things from here in this country to Korea to, you know, serving, you know, abroad in, in Afghanistan as the chief nurse and, and chief of clinical operations and even in Germany. So, I mean, the amount of experience that you have had Lou is, is it's just incredible to, to, to me. And I think to a lot of the people listening here. So really, you know, I guess I'm personally curious as you've made your tour across the globe and, and now back, what's been maybe a common theme that you've seen in the role of nursing when it comes to, to healthcare? I think, you know, when you're in the military, it's, you tend to really want to focus on, on your own service. And I learned early on that, uh, that, really did make a difference, you know, between the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Healthcare is healthcare. And then from that, you know, whether it's military or civilian, as we say, or I say in the military, you know, healthcare doesn't wear a uniform. So, you know, a, a patient is a patient and, and a healthcare provider is, is a healthcare provider. So military or civilian. And then, yeah, working with, yeah, I was uh, stationed in Korea and stationed in Germany and working with a lot of different NATO countries and I went down to Greece and, and spent some time in their field hospital, and we did a, a large exercise in Romania with the Balkan Medical Task Force and Romanians and Bulgarians and Hungary, and you know, there's a Polish medical team, and I had an opportunity to go and teach in South Africa for the, you know, the South African Military Health Service, and you know, everywhere we went, it was, it was the same. It was a, you know, just that spirit of service caring for those in need. And there really has not been much difference and, and just a great opportunity to learn from others and see see their approach to healthcare. You know, some of the products that they used were, were slightly you know different, but the bottom line was you know taking care of that person in need that was sitting there in front of you. You know, from combat deployments, you know, from our patients being our service members and service members from other countries, as well as, um, you know, local citizens. It, it was really didn't, it didn't even matter what the, the language was. We actually, when we were in Iraq, put together a patient satisfaction survey and had it translated to Arabic so that we could ask them for their feedback. We, we truly wanted to know what their experience was and how they felt about it. And they were they were surprised that, you know, the Americans were asking. And so we had our, you know, bilingual translators ask them the questions and, and translate it so that we could truly get a feel for what it meant to them and how their healthcare experience was. And we gained an incredible amount of, you know, goodwill and they truly understood that, that we meant it. We asked them the questions. We wanted to know the answers and, and we wanted to make a difference. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, it does come down to that. You know, it's it's the human aspects of caring and, you know, get, getting beyond the that patient feel. It's like you're a human here, you know, and I like how you said it, you know, healthcare has no uniform. And so what is it that thing, Lou, that inspired your work, this lifelong work in healthcare? I think, you know, it, it starts with where you grow up, you know, the, the, the culture that you're in, obviously my, my family, you know, I think we, we first start there and my parents growing up, you know, volunteered as emergency medical technicians. It was not their background, but that's something that they wanted to do is, uh, it was a all volunteer ambulance. And so I, you know, spent years watching them, you know, in their 
spare time. My dad worked full time and then, you know, would work nights and weekends to volunteer you know, for the ambulance. And then my older sister went into nursing and, you know, she shared a lot with me about, you know, her perspective of it as I was looking for, you know, to make a decision on schooling. And I, I think that's definitely what got me started in nursing school was just her experience and her, you know, her, her genuineness towards, you know, taking care of others. And, you know, I, I saw in that a career where, you know, I, that's where I, you know, I felt I could start. It's just, you know, taking care of other people and and offering, you know, those in need. And, you know, I learned a lot of my initial experience, just being on an ambulance, you know, with my parents and, and my older sister and, you know, going to a motor vehicle crash and, you know, in the middle of the night and, you know, some deserted expressway or back road and, you know, seeing people truly in need and, we were it, you know, we were, we were the ones that showed up and, you know, gave them that initial care and, and got them to the ambulance or to the hospital. That's, you know, I think what sparked my passion for, you know, having that training. And then, you know, to, to follow that on, you know, there was a time in my career when, you know, it came full circle and I, I was on the, the burn flight team for the, uh, for the U.S. Army for, for many years, transporting burn casualties from primarily from Germany down to uh, Texas. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, I really I stopped and paused and, and thought and we were in the back of some aircraft somewhere over the Atlantic. And, you know, it was it was me and, and my patients and, and I could just stop and say to myself, now I know, I know what I know. And, you know, you can, you can be fairly confident at times, but when you're in the back of an aircraft and you can't, you can't pull over, you can't phone a friend, yeah. it's, it, it's you and the patient. And then that's, that's when you know that, you know, everything that you train for is, is worth it. And you can share that expertise with those in need. Yeah. And, and how long is that flight? <laughs> it is 11 hours and 50 minutes uh, <laughs> from, uh, from Frankfurt, actually out of Ramstein Air Base to San Antonio. If we get a direct flight, Man. it is it is one critical care shift, just the flight. So our average flight was, or our average mission time was about 60 hours. So it was about two and a half days total from the time we went wheels up out of Texas to Germany, you know, got the casualty, evaluated them, package them and transport them back. Our average time was, was two and a half days. So, wow. And are you guys in, I mean, like I've heard stories like these, you know, flights are, you know, are, are rough. Like, you know, it's, is it comfortable up there when, when you're traveling with the patient or is it, is it pretty sparse? Yeah, I guess like, like most things it's, uh, it's how you define it. And, yeah. you know, a friend of mine said to me one time, he said, it's amazing what we get used to. And, you know, I thought, because we were having a, a conversation about, about something and, you know, we were just kind of describing it. And when I stopped and thought about it, I was like, you know what, other people probably wouldn't understand what we do or why we do it. And then there's other things that other people do. And I, I just, I can't completely comprehend it, but yeah, the back of the aircraft, there's not much in there. You have your, the litters and you put everything in some big Pelican tough boxes and that's that's all the medical equipment that you need. And the biggest thing that you need is, is between your ears and here you take that wherever you go. 
That's awesome, man. That is amazing. Just picture you back there, you know, taking care of somebody that really needs help. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter, right? It, like you got what you need between your ears. And oftentimes we could get a little comfortable with where we're at. And I think, you know, this message to everybody listening, you know, likely in the civilian world, you know, you have you gotten too comfortable? You know, are, are you... Are you not thinking about the most essential things that rest between your ears like Luz is mentioning to us? I think this is a great reminder to all of us that, hey, you know, let's not take things for granted. Let's let's work with what we've got here. You know, I think what nurses in general have to offer are great. But as a nurse leader, Lewis, what would you say you and your teams provide to the healthcare system and, and in a way that's unique or better than a lot of things out there? Yeah, right. I don't think we ever like to say things that we do things better. You know, it's it's innovative. There's, you know, one thing about conflict and deployments, you know, through military history is it's it's required adaptation, you know, from the Revolutionary War, you know, the Civil War and, you know, clearing casualties from the, the battlefield. You know, they they started taking carts out there and, and moving them back. And, you know, it was, it requires thought, you know, it requires to, you know, do things differently. You know, it's unfortunate that it ha- it happens, but, you know, from that, you know, it forces us in some way to, you know, come up with new techniques. So, you know, the AeroVac system, you know, that, that developed from the military and, you know, moving people from one area of the battlefield to another. And now certainly it's, it's everywhere around the world, you know, to move casualties to, you know, the highest level trauma center that you can get them to. And then, you know, there's some areas of the world where they take it forward. So they actually, you know, have adapted their ambulance rigs to carry pretty much everything that they need from the emergency room. And then they start treatment out there at the scene. You know, it's innovation, you know, requires thought. One of the things, you know, in this conflict early on in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we, we started getting a lot of casualties with amputees and, you know, lower limb amputees, you know, prosthetics were pretty good, but they, they made, you know, a lot of changes to them. And so that, you know, now they can move in, you know, multiple planes, you know, instead of just being a, a fixed prosthetic. And so they, they just worked on making it smaller, lighter, more adaptable and more realistic. And then one of the challenges was to, and they actually, you know, challenged the industry. They said, we want you to make an upper limb prosthetic where the grip can be so sensitive that we can pick up a grape. And that was probably one of the toughest things was, you know, you look at a prosthetic and you, you know, they would, the casualty would look at it, they'd have the prosthetic on, they'd go to pick it up and they just, they would squish it. So how can you make it so responsive that as you start to apply pressure on a grape, it's enough pressure to pick it up, but not too much pressure that you, that you crush it. And Amazing. you know, that, yeah, that took some, some innovation to, to develop that, that feedback mechanism. Lou, and, and you know, it's gosh, I mean, with some of these examples that you mentioned, it is really being in the front lines and having that necessity that drives the innovation, right? And, and, and like the scrape example, I mean, how are you going to do that unless you truly actually need it in the line of fire? Yeah, it's requirements. And, you know, we, we don't develop these things until, you know, there's, there's truly a need for it. And, you know, look at what's going on right now, you know, with the, the COVID vaccine and you yeah. know, turning into a global pandemic. And they said, not only do we need, you know, a few vaccines, but we need, you know, now they've given over eight and a half billion, you know, nine billion you know, vaccines, which is just a phenomenal amount in a in little over a year. So, you know, it required 
new technology and the ability to you know mass produce and and transport around the world. So you know it's not just the military, but you know the military and the civilians. That's why I say healthcare doesn't have wear a uniform. It's you know healthcare is healthcare, and you know where there's needs, you know we need to come up with new and better ways to um, offer that that service. And you know with what's been going on recently, it's been incredibly difficult on our healthcare team. We and you know service providers overall they've been you know leaving the career field just because it is it has been so hard on them for such a prolonged period of time there's only so much you can continue to do so you know not just you know nurses and you know some physicians but you know people that work in other areas of the service industry you know restaurants hotels you know there there's a lot of workers that have have walked away from it just because it's it's been so difficult to continue to offer you know that that spirit for such a prolonged period of time when everybody's under such strain yeah you know and it's one of the biggest issues right now too right it's it's staff shortages it's supply chain constraints it's the domino effect that's been created by by covid and its impacts on our overall economy to your point it's beyond healthcare right it, it just it, it has spilled over to so many different fields what would you say is the biggest setback you've experienced? And what's the key there? Is it what we're going through now? Is it is it something different? I think I think now, you know, these, these current times have been some of the most challenging. There's such a need for healthcare to be delivered, but it's so difficult to deliver it. So, you know, it it shocked a lot of people, you know, now almost 2 years ago when, you know, they started laying off furloughing healthcare workers. Because you know a lot of them were were surgical services, so when that got put on hold, elective procedures you know got put on hold. They you know they didn't they weren't doing them. The surgical teams just weren't needed, and it, it seems so ironic to you know tell you know perioperative staff are like, well we're we don't have the income, we're not generating revenue, and so we have to furlough you. And yet on the other side, we've got other people where the overtime was unsustainable yeah. and the shortages were dangerous at times. You, know, you just, you need a full healthcare team. And when you don't have that, then everyone's at risk because, you know, patient errors or, or things get missed. So it has become a difficult time to get the right resources in the right place at the right time and to be adaptive or responsive quickly enough as things change and they just continue to change. Yeah, it is a big challenge, you know, for those of you listening, thinking through this as well, you know, gosh, I mean, what's the answer? I mean, how do we, because we're not, we're not, it's not done yet. I mean, we're in the middle of it. What can we do? Yeah, that's the, the biggest question. How do we move resources, you know, is I think probably one of the, the hardest things with this situation has been, you know, the length of the hospital stay. And that's, you know, 30 years ago when, when I started out and, and before that, the you know, average length of a hospital stay was, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm actually just throwing out a number here, but let's say it was like a week, you know, mm-hmm. five, six, seven days for, for many things. You came in, you were there, you had your procedure, you stayed for quite some time afterwards. And that has just steadily changed where, you know, there's a lot more things that are done laparoscopically. And so, you know, many procedures now are outpatient. Mm-hmm. Or if you do stay, it's overnight. And now, you know, with, with COVID, you know, people come in and, and stay. My background, my specialty area is burn care. And, you know, from that 
patient model, we're very used to it. Your average hospital stay is, you know, one to two hospital days for every percent burnt. So if you have somebody with a 40% burn, they're going to be in the hospital for on average 40 to 80 days. That's, wow. that's expected. So you expect them to be there and to stay there, you know, while they go through the healthcare, you know, system, but in other areas, it, it's just the whole healthcare model has moved away from that where it's, you know, rapid admission, the procedure, discharge, because you want them home. <laughs> yeah. Hospitals are full of sick people. <laughs> so the quicker yeah. I can get you home, the better for all of us. But in, in this case, you know, with, you know, severe, you know, hypoxia and just, you know, the debilitation from this disease process, people come and they, they need to stay for quite some time. And the other thing is, if, if I send you home, you're at risk to just continue to transmit, you know, COVID to others. So it's not the model that we have right now. And, you know, the other area that's been struggling with this has been behavioral health for many years. You know, we used to have institutions and literally we used to institutionalize people. And that, you know, was was found to just be not the right approach to behavioral health. So those, you know, mental health facilities were pretty much gotten rid of. But then what they found was there's not a specialty area to, you know, to put these patients into where they can get that focus for, you know, their unique healthcare needs and just putting them in with other patients does not, is not the benefit for everyone. So that's been steady ongoing change as well over the past many years is to develop respectable facilities where behavioral health patients can go and receive the unique care that they need in the unique setting that they need in a safe environment other than, you know, being out on the street somewhere. So, yeah, no, great, great call outs. And I think ultimately you called it right. It's that need to increase the, our capability, I think, and in the home, how do we care for people in the home, right? There's been a big shift to ASCs, ambulatory surgical centers, doing a lot of these, these orthopedic procedures there and laparoscopic procedures, like you mentioned, keeping folks out of the, out of the hospital, especially today. And now how do we support these people outside? I think herein lies the opportunity to scale the power of physicians and nurses outside. And that's a big opportunity, you know? So from my perspective, I get excited about this idea of, you know, changing where care is delivered. What are you most excited about? I think one of the big opportunities right now is to really look at the healthcare team. And I think, you know, the military is, is great. When I was in a course several years ago, our facilitator asked the question, is the military a profession or a bureaucracy? And, you know, a group of leaders had a, had a very spirited discussion for some time because it's, it's both. And it's, it's easy to add on additional tasks is very difficult to remove some of those tasks, to take the time to say, okay, what, what do we no longer need? What no longer serves us? And I've seen in a lot of facilities where because we have added tasks, we add more professionals. And so more registered nurses, more advanced practice nurses, more physicians, because we've added administrative tasks. And somebody really needs to take the time to say, okay, what should be done by somebody else? You know, our administrative personnel are incredibly important at at what we do. And, you know, from billing and coding and, you know, just running the clinical facility, a lot of it's being done also by 
the healthcare providers. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there to redefine the team and restructure it and to free up our clinicians to do more of the direct clinical tasks and, you know, remove a lot of that redundant administrative tasks. I often, you know, I get frustrated when you know, somebody comes up with something new and, and gee whiz and, you know, it's electronic or it's digital and, you know, just for the sake of replacing a piece of paper. Well, a piece of paper's worked absolutely fine for, for many years. And, you know, then they can't figure out why, you know, the, their electronic system doesn't work and they're, they're just spinning around trying to fix it as, as opposed to saying, hey, you know what, let's go back to the basics, you know, what works. What works is that piece of equipment you're carrying around between your ears, and that's that's what's really going to make the difference. And one of my personal goals as a nursing leader is to take every opportunity to free up the nursing staff to be at the bedside. What can I do to remove an administrative task that allows you to spend more time with your patient, with our patient? I love that. And you know what, Lou? It's so simple. I mean, it's... Simply said, <laughs> it's not as simply done, exactly. but the opportunity that, that this, you know, strategy that you're moving forward with is huge for the level of care, but also the, the well-being of the actual caregiver. You know, when we think about the quadruple aim, that's like crystally important as everything else that we're, that we're doing. So I love it. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Lou, just incredible. I want to thank you for today. The time just flew. I'm looking at the clock here. Before we conclude, why don't you leave us with the closing thought and then the best place that the listeners could get in touch with you or continue the conversation, whether it's LinkedIn or your email or whatever you, you, you choose. I think one of the things that I've focused on as a leader recently, you know, I've, I've had a lot of opportunity to work with some fantastic you know, organizational developers. And, you know, we spent quite a bit of time working with the team to first understand yourself so that you better understand others. And when you get the opportunity to work through that as a team and see how your other teammates work through, you know, a question, then you really understand, you know, what their thought process is and, and how they arrive at their conclusion. And I think once you understand that, then you can work more effectively together. One of the things that I've worked with, with, with my managers and you know some of my employees is to spend that time with them outside of the office, as I refer to it as, as hallway mentoring, where you can spend that time together in just talking about your profession, talking about the organization, talking about, you know, their needs in an area that's not designated for something else, an office or a conference room. And that's, you know, when they truly understand that it's about us, not any, you know, some location where we are, it's, it's about us. And when decisions need to be made, it's in our best interest. It may not be what we always want, but it's in our best interest for us and, and for the organization. And I, I think when people understand that, that it's not, just policies that are coming from the C-suite and, you know, without an understanding of what the effect is, then they know that it's being done for the good of our whole organization and, and our patients. So, you know, if people want to get in touch with me, best place is probably on LinkedIn. I can certainly be found on there just under Lewis Stout. And, you know, I've increased my network a lot, you know, over the past couple of years, and it's been incredibly helpful just to you know, get in touch with with people all over the country and all over the world and, and share a little bit of our expertise with each other. And I've, I've learned so much from all these uh, amazing leaders that are that are everywhere around us. 
Well, I want to say thank you. And these, you know, hallway, the hallway mentoring that you mentioned, you know, being connecting with people outside the office, super powerful. And on the, on the networking thing, folks, make sure you connect with, with Lou, because uh, I mean, just an incredible thought leader, an incredible nurse executive, and certainly somebody that I think could offer a lot of value to you and, and the work that you guys do, no matter what sector of healthcare you're in. So connect with him, Lou. I just want to say thank you for the work that you've done and that you continue to do and appreciate you sharing your story here on the Outcomes Rocket. Thank you very much again. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. It's been, been terrific. Mm-hmm.